Well, I often feel just a little bit like King David in the evening when I stand on the beach and watch the sunset. I know some of you saw a beautiful sunset last Sunday. Sometimes at night, I stand and I look at the stars and I finally figured out that one that was really bright and that's there every night is Jupiter. I've seen the moon when it's full or when it's in a crescent. I've watched it set as the sun rises. And in those moments, I feel very, very small. And I imagine, even though thousands of years separate us, that my feelings are not much different than those expressed by King David in the 8th Psalm. King David had an interesting life. He was a powerful king, but he was also a terrible sinner. His psalms are filled with the variety of emotions that fill our very lives today. And I encourage you, if you ever kneel down to pray or sit to pray and the words won't come, then just open your Bible to the psalms and find a psalm and read the psalm out loud because in their beauty and their poetry and their majesty, truly the psalms connect us to God as beautifully as any prayer. But the eighth psalm, it's very short. It's only eight or nine verses, and it's packed with meaning. First, with its opening line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, we recognize that David bows down before God's glory. But then he says something interesting. He says, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. God uses fools and infants and the weak and the infirm to proclaim his glory. People just like us. We best proclaim God's glory when in fact we are like infants before God. When we admit our weakness and our frailty and we allow God's strength to come into our hearts in place of our own sense of self-sufficiency, David knew how to glorify God. David also recognized in this psalm his own insignificance. He said, when I look at the sky and I see all the stars and the vastness of your creation and the work of your fingers, who are human beings that you would be so mindful of them? It was a question asked with reverence and respect because David knew that God was God and David was not. But then, in a moment of revelation for all of us, David answered the question he posed. Who are human beings that you would be mindful of them? And he answered the question saying, for you have made us to be just a little lower than God. In other translations, just a little lower than the angels. And yet other translations, just a little lower than the heavenly beings. I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, it doesn't look to me like humanity is too close to being heavenly beings. And I know that on my very best day, I don't even come close, and on my worst days, I'm far closer to being as low as the world calls me to be. But all of that glory that God chose to bestow upon us kind of got lost in the fall. But it's not lost forever. 
And David reminds us that with that glory and with that honor that God bestowed upon us when he created us in his own image, male and female alike, to be just a little lower than the angels, came responsibility. Responsibility for the earth. Responsibility to be good stewards and rulers over the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. I don't know. Oil spills, red tide, cities where you can't even see the stars. I'm not sure we're living up to God's expectation when it comes to being stewards of the earth. Maybe we could try just a little bit harder. So how do we find our way back to being just a little lower than God? Just a little lower than the angels? The psalmist doesn't answer that question for us. But we can find an answer to that question in the pages of the New Testament. In the birth and life, the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. We can't find our way back to that place on our own. Got bad news for you. There's not one of us here who in our own will or our own strength can find that place just a little lower than the angels. We don't have it in us. But when we let God fill our hearts, when we accept the work that Jesus Christ did for us, we can regain all that God created us to be. And I'd like to illustrate that today with a story from the New Testament. We find it in Luke chapter 7. It's a common story, but it's one that has some little quirks about it that I always have made me scratch my head and say, wait, how can that be? I don't understand. But I get ahead of myself. Let me read the story for you. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read uh, verses 36 through 40. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. But before I get to what Jesus told Simon, I'd like to explore a little bit about the story I just read because there's pieces of it, if we read very carefully, that seem kind of confusing. And I didn't know the item I'm about to share with you, these items, until I heard a recording by a New Testament scholar who teaches at a seminary in Chicago whose name is Dr. Gary Burge. And he opened up the meaning of this story for me in a new way and reminded me that we need to dig deep if we want to understand our Bibles. The first question that came to my mind is, what was this lady doing in the Pharisee's house? she just kind of walk in? It doesn't make any sense. Have you ever had guests over for dinner and had somebody just walk in one day? It doesn't make a bit of sense. And what do they mean that she was weeping at his feet and wiping his feet behind him? I had this vision of this woman crawling around under a table amongst all these feet. 
And it didn't make any sense. But this is how a dinner used to be hosted during the days this story was written. Someone would invite honored guests to dinner, and the dinner would be held in a courtyard that was an outside part of the house. And the courtyard would have a door that opened to the road through the street that people could pass by. And that door would be propped open so the passers-by could see the important people who were dining together and who could actually walk into the courtyard and line the perimeter of the area with the table in the center so that they could hear the discussions and learn from what was taking place. Or, if they were like so many people today, they could just gawk. Have you ever been to an open house with people who you knew were not looking for a house? I have. So people would come into the courtyard and they would watch and they would listen. And the people who were at the table would not be sitting with their legs under the table on a chair. Instead, they would be reclining on their side with pillows propping one side up with their legs thrust out behind them. That was the way they eat. That was actually the posture of the people who were eating the Last Supper. And so, this woman came into the courtyard and she reacted to seeing Jesus. Well, why did she react the way she did? Well, because it was customary when you invited a guest to your home for the host to offer them water to wash their feet, to offer oil to put in their hair, and to offer a kiss to the guest. And this woman, watching what was going on at this meal, knew that the Pharisee had not done that. And her heart broke at the disgraceful way that the, the uh, Pharisee had treated Jesus. And so this is what Jesus said to the Pharisee, knowing what he had thought. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, the, the Pharisee's name was Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven." as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But I think she already knew that. She responded to the forgiveness, to some exchange that this story doesn't tell us about, that had already happened where she knew that Jesus loved her, a lowly outcast who was probably guilty of all kinds of sexual sin. Jesus had forgiven her, and so when she saw the Pharisee tried to humiliate Jesus, she provided the greetings and the graciousness and the love that should have been offered by the host. What that woman did was outrageous in biblical times. She was a woman, and you weren't supposed to touch a man who wasn't your husband. You weren't supposed to be out in public with your hair down, much less use your hair to wipe someone's feet. 
She kissed and perfumed his feet, and it was scandalous. And the Pharisee judged the way only religious people can. First, he tried to disgrace Jesus. Then he judged Jesus. And then he judged the sinner. But Jesus' words in the story, when he says, But whoever has been forgiven little loves little, tells us that the Pharisee had not been forgiven because he wasn't smart enough to know that he needed to ask for forgiveness. He held himself in a high and arrogant and mighty place. And yet in this story, we learn that it was the woman, the sinner, who actually found a place that was a little lower than the angels. What a surprise. Who do you think was closer to God by the end of that story? The Pharisee or the woman? So what does that, the psalm we heard before in this story teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us that there are lots of contrasts in this world. There's lots of contrasts in the way people behave. Do we act like the awestruck psalmist who's overwhelmed by the majesty of God's creation? Or are we the self-sufficient, I-can-do-it-all-in-my-own-strength kind of people that our society loves so much? Are we the sinful woman? Are we the Pharisee? Or like me, are we a little of both? Are we humble? Are we arrogant? Are we a little lower than God? Or are we as low as the world calls us to be? You know, to answer these questions, that, that, to answer those questions I pose to you, there's things that we need to contemplate. First, do we ever ask the question in our quiet moments when we are alone only with God, God, who am I in your eyes? Do we ask the question in a reverent way, a humble way, a way where our posture is bowed low to the ground, recognizing that God is God? And we are not. Since people have chosen not to be a little lower than the angels or a little lower than God, do we wonder sometimes, does God even care anymore? Have we done enough that God has finally given up on us? And I hope since you're here this morning that you know the answer to that is absolutely not. As our story from Luke demonstrates. But we have to ask these questions because in asking them, we empty ourselves of our arrogance. We empty ourselves of being self-sufficient. We empty ourselves of our anger and our hatred. Paul reminds us in his letter to the church at Ephesus that we don't have to find our way back to that lofty place on our own. The hard work of finding our way has already been done by one who chose to come and light our paths. This is what Paul said. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. 
It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. In the heavenly realms, just a little lower than God. You know, we hear stories in the midst of all the world's tra tragedies and oppression and hatred and racisms and this ism and that ism. We hear incredible stories about how good people can be when they find Christ and Christ fills their heart. I'd like to share one of them with you today. I do not know if this is a true story, but I choose to believe it is true because it gives me hope that the very worst of us can become the very best of us when we know the Lord. As the story goes, it was after Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans was devastated. Boxes and boxes of relief supplies were pouring in to depots where they were trying to get things to people who needed help. Many of those people were African Americans, as you know. And one of the workers in the depot opened a box and found a note. And the note said, we won't be needing this anymore. We have found Jesus Christ. The love in our hearts has replaced our hatred. The grace he has given us has replaced our anger. No, we won't need these Ku Klux Klan robes anymore. See if you can put them to use. And so at that depot on that day, they tore those robes into strips. Those symbols of judgment and hatred, oppression, legacy of some of our worst days, robes that perhaps had been worn by people who went to church. I don't think we have any former KKK members here, but if we do, I'm glad you're here today. But many of the people who were involved in the Ku Klux Klan went to church on Sundays. But in this story, we see the transformative power of Jesus Christ to change love, to change to love, hatred, to make bandages about the worst symbol of hatred that I can think of in our American history. On that day in New Orleans, they made bandages, but somewhere the former owners of those robes were just a little closer to the angels than they used to be. And so we have to decide if we're going to allow the power of what Jesus did for us and what the Holy Spirit does in us to change us as well. I saw the power of that at work last Sunday at the beach. Many of you were there. Many of our young people aren't here today because um, they are at a retreat. They were there. We had people ranging in age from single digits to in the 80s. And we had people in those age ranges immersed in the water to either be baptized or remember their baptism. The weather had been stormy all week long, and yet that evening, in that place, the sun was shining, and as we said grace over the meal, a rainbow appeared. 
It's like, really, God? It was so good. And then as Pastor Bob said the words to the liturgy of the baptism, instead of dead fish lining the beach in the middle of a red tide scare, there were no dead fish on the beach, but there were live dolphins leaping in the water behind him. I mean, you can't write this stuff. And then people came into the water. People who I had spoken to as a pastor who had said to me, I'm so stuck where I am. I can't find my way. I'm not moving forward in my faith journey. And as we immersed them in the water and raised them out, they were beaming. Today, one of those, not today, earlier this week, one of those people said to me, it unstuck me. There were people who got in the water together who I know had shared angry words within the last six months and whose relationships were now healed enough that they walked into the water holding hands. I know there were people who I helped immerse in the water who've not liked everything they've heard from me when I stand here before you. People who sometimes have been angry with me, and if I'm honest, there's been a few times I've felt a little chippy towards some of them. But on last Sunday as we remembered our baptism. None of that mattered, and as a church family, everyone who was there came just a little bit closer to being a little lower than the angels because the body of Christ was in love with the Lord, with one another, and with the one baptism that we proclaim. You know, I love this church. I look out here today, and I know that we do lots of good work. On our best days as a church, we try to be just a little lower than the angels in the lives of people who need us. And I hope a year from now, as I look out from this place, I hope the empty pews are a little more full. There's lots of people here today, and there's lots of people who are at the youth retreat. But people... There are folks out there in the community that don't know anything about being just a little lower in the angels because no one has told them what that means or who God is or what Jesus did to make it possible. That's what we're for. And we do it with our actions. And we do it with our words. I asked you some questions before and now I asked you, are we going to be like the forgiven sinner who loves generously because we know the price that was paid for us to be redeemed? Or are we going to be like the Pharisee who's so dumb that he doesn't even know he needs to be forgiven? Are we going to be like Jesus who forgave the sinful woman? Or the Pharisee who judged her? Are we going to be like the awestruck psalmist who says, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Or are we going to be someone who says, Oh me, oh my, I am really something and I can handle my own life and I don't need help from anybody. Will we be as low as the world tempts us to be and then say those pitifully inappropriate words? Well, I'm only human? Only human? Are you kidding me? God created us in his image to be just a little lower than the angels. There's nothing only about that. And so today I ask you, make a choice to be only human 
or to be just a little lower than the angels. God won't force your choice. It's up to you. But because of who you were created to be, you have the power to choose to be right there with those heavenly beings.